Good afternoon, colleagues. I'm delighted to introduce uh, to you Professor Sue Ellen Shea, um, who will be taking up the conference theme this afternoon. Um, Sue Ellen is Associate uh, Professor uh, in the Centre for Higher Education Development at the University of Cape Town, um, where I, I met her first several years ago, um, where she's also Deputy Dean of, of CHAIRD. And for over 20 years, she's been involved in all sorts of development activities across the institution, language development, curriculum development, staff and institutional development. So she's paid her dues and knows her stuff. Now, South Africa's a fascinating country, as those of us who've had the opportunity to, to go there would can testify. Uh, and facing the most immense challenges in higher education of kinds that make those in, in, in easier countries from the educational point of view um, count our blessings, I think. Its past and its present mean that some of the taken-for-granted assumptions about higher education that we may have um, in a country like the UK, not to be too UK-centric at that point, are really laid bare. Um, and through that process, we can actually be reminded that these are just not South African issues, these are of universal significance that, that have a particular point in that context. So that's one reason why Sue Ellen, I think, is so well equipped to talk with us today. Um, today, Sue Ellen will propose that at the heart of uh, thinking about curriculum is the contestable nature of knowledge, and she'll suggest we need to think about epistemic codes in relation to access in higher education. So, Sue Ellen, we very much look forward to hearing your talk. And colleagues, will you join me in welcoming Sue Ellen? Thank you. This does rather seem a, a better time to be uh, soaking in a jacuzzi with a drink than listening to a keynote. Uh, but alas, here we are, and uh, thank you very much uh, for the privilege and the opportunity to uh, present this keynote to you. And I particularly want to thank um, Helen and um, Jill and Francois and the rest of the SRHE team uh, for inviting me to be here. It's been wonderful. I will address the theme of what is higher education for from the rich and contested site of curriculum. Much of the contestation around curriculum occurs against the backdrop of global concerns about the general failure of higher education evidenced in poor articulation between school and university, poor completion rates, the performance gap between privileged and underprivileged, underemployed graduates, and the general failure of higher education to meet the needs of the knowledge society. <coughs> Scott. Some of you will know Ian Scott, describes this crisis in South Africa as a systemic failure. Higher education in South Africa is failing the majority of its young people. In response to this crisis, curriculum debates are often framed through a discourse of polarities, or what I might call false choices, about the purposes of higher education. These include, for example, choices about curriculum for employability, versus educating the mind, vocational versus academic, knowing, being, problem versus discipline-based, depth versus breadth, mode one versus mode two. I propose that underlying these debates and the false choices they construct are contestations about knowledge. And if we are to make any headway as policymakers, educational development specialists, teachers and researchers in higher education, we need to move beyond these false choices. 
And in order to do this, we need to better understand the field of contestation, which gives rise to this polarized discourse. Amid these contestations, sociologists of education, rooted in social realism, have made a compelling case for knowledge. They have argued that knowledge matters in education and that there are different kinds of knowledge. Not all forms of knowledge are equal and that these differentiations have significant implications for curriculum. The crucial implication is that if learners are to have access to powerful knowledge, then all curricula, including vocational, must include theoretical knowledge. More specifically, all curricula must include epistemic access to theoretical knowledge. As Lisa Wheelahan puts it, social access without epistemic access is merely to reproduce social inequality. Much of the focus of the knowledge and curriculum debate and critique has focused on the schooling sector. There is, however, a growing body of scholarship focusing on higher education, as a recent symposium in my own institution will testify, and Paul Ashwin's special edition of higher education coming out in 2013. The purpose of this paper is to zoom out from this significant and in some cases groundbreaking empirical work to look at the wider field in Bourdieu's sense. The paper will proceed in four parts. Firstly, I'll clarify what I mean by epistemic access. Second, I turn to the field of knowledge production and look at some of the contestations about knowledge. And third, drawing on key theorists in the sociology of education, namely Basil Bernstein, Pierre Bourdieu, and Carl Mayton, I offer a conceptual framework. The framework enables us to map contestations in the field of knowledge production and to explain what might be happening in higher education curriculum. And finally, I use the framework to explore specifically what happens to knowledge when curricula face outwards. I propose that one possible explanation for the crisis currently being experienced in higher education is a widening gap between the needs of our knowledge society and the kinds of curricula which higher education have to offer. Firstly, then, epistemic access. What is it and why? The notion of epistemic access was coined by the late Wally Morrow, a South African scholar and activist, who argued that if one of the key purposes of higher education is to produce knowledgeable citizens, then it must follow that one of its core functions has to be to give students access to knowledge, access to what Morrow calls the epistemic values, that is, the forms of inquiry of the disciplines. Now, this is more than disciplinary content. It is the grammar, he calls, quote, the grammar of inquiry. And Morrow elaborates on this, and I quote from him. In this way of talking, any established and disciplined practice, such as civil engineering, teaching, mathematics, legal practice, biochemistry, history, primary health care, can be said to be constituted by a particular, but not necessarily exclusive grammar. Higher knowledge of the practice in question would consist in understanding the constitutive grammar of the practice, the grammar that makes the practice what it is. Now, he is clear that it is not knowledge for knowledge's sake. Quote, what I have claimed is that the modern society does not so much value knowledge per se, but rather that kind of knowledge that is a potential and potent catalyst for innovation and growth. 
Now, while higher education is no longer the only knowledge producer, it still has a unique mission in producing the knowledge producers, ensuring a new generation of knowledgeable citizens and professionals who can contribute to all spheres of society. Higher education's role in this endeavor is not simply an extension of schooling. It is not the same as post-secondary. It is called higher education for a reason. Morrow, quoting from Johann Muller's work, says, higher education involves a capacity to manipulate information and knowledge to produce new configurations. This is really what new knowledge means in a steady state knowledge society. It involves, in other words, the ability to distinguish between representations and objects and to be able to manipulate the representations to generate new connections." Unquote. What was Morrow on about? What were the particular concerns that he had about higher education at the dawn of South Africa's new democracy? To foreground epistemic access, that is, access to specialized discourses, as one of the key functions of higher education would not have been a particularly popular line in the early days of post-apartheid discourse. It smacked of elitism. Morrow is writing at a time when higher education in South Africa was experiencing rapid expansion of enrollments and a promising increase in the number of students who had historically been denied access. By 2000, the number of black students enrolled in higher education had nearly doubled. They comprised nearly 60% of overall enrollments. However, as Muller argues, Morrow was one of the first to sound a warning that if we were not serious, that if we were serious about opening the doors to learning, as the then fashionable slogan had it, formal access was one thing and epistemological access another. What we know now is that Morrow's concerns were well-founded. The open doors of learning have become, for the vast majority, a revolving door. The great achievements of post-apartheid's increased enrollment upon greater scrutiny reveals a marginal increase in overall participation rate of 15% in 2001 to 16% today, with a 60% participation rate for white students and only 12% for black students. In terms of completion rates, national cohort studies show that only 30% of the students have completed their three-year degree in five years. And the completion rate for black students is about half that of white students for many programs. This is the quantitative picture of the systemic failure that Scott is referring to noted above. Now we can take as given that not only is this a blow for social justice, but it's a profound blow to the future sustainability of South Africa's economic development. As a knowledge society, we note the relationship between knowledge production and economic development, especially in developing countries. Morrow's call for epistemic access spotlights the huge challenges to steer a conceptual path between the twin goals of equity, in other words, the imperatives of redress, and development, the need for highly skilled knowledge producers. This is the permanent tension in, the developing, in a developing country in a fiercely competitive globalized world. It is another one of those false choices, especially in the context of countries such as South Africa, where the majority have been disenfranchised. If we do not deal with redress, there will be no development. And thus these goals have to be held in tension. This means 
compromises on each side. It means the process of transformation is likely to be slower. Difficult political choices have to be made. So the argument for epistemic access is now being made at a time when the need for knowledgeable citizens has never been greater. When higher education is currently systematically failing to deliver against this purpose, and when there's a great deal of conceptual confusion at, high, at higher levels about what we might mean by knowledge in a knowledge society. The opportunities for higher education curriculum form have never been greater. And Morrow hits a keynote for us. The term epistemic access has become ubiquitous in educational development work in South Africa and beyond. But more conceptual work is needed. The stakes are perhaps greater than even he imagined. What I want to do now is to turn to the field of knowledge production, which was um, sort of expanded on us by our keynote speaker this morning in much more detail than I'll be able to go, but I'm going to use the mode one, mode two as a bit of a proxy for some of that. If we want to understand what is at stake in higher education curricula, then Bernstein argues that we will find clues in the field of knowledge production. It has been nearly 20 years since the controversial Mode 1, Mode 2 thesis of Gibbons and colleagues. The general thesis that the production of knowledge and the process of research are being radically transformed is one which today is hard to argue against. Gibbons and colleagues argue that the changing research environment can be characterized by three trends, trends which are generally accepted to be significant. The steering of research priorities, the commercialization of research, and the accountability of science. They argue that these and other trends or changes in practice have given rise to new discourses of science and research. These trends have resulted, they argue, in a new discourse of science. In subsequent work, they clarify, they further clarify the characteristics of mode two. And for the purposes of my talk, I want to highlight two of these. The first is that mode two knowledge is generated within a context of application. In further development of their argument, they elaborate that this is not the facile distinction between pure and applied science. The context of application, in contrast, describes the total environment in which scientific problems arise, methodologies are developed, outcomes are disseminated, and uses are defined. And again, quoting from them on another characteristic of mode two is that of transdisciplinarity by which is meant the mobilization of a range of theoretical perspectives and practical methodologies to solve problems. But unlike inter or multidisciplinarity, it is not necessarily derived from pre-existing disciplines, nor does it always contribute to the formation of new disciplines. The creative act lies just as much in the capacity to mobilize and manage these perspectives and methodologies. In other words, their external orchestration as in the development of new theories or conceptualizations. It is not my intention to review the many arguments for or against this thesis. The argument attracted a great deal of attention by policymakers in South Africa who found it a convenient and compelling driver for the transformation of higher education. It also came under sharp attack from some quarters of the academic community, in particular an interpretation that Gibbons was arguing for a replacement thesis, that mode two was replacing mode one. Muller critiqued the way in which the advocacy for mode two was problematically taken up by curriculum policy in South Africa, providing a platform 
for curricula to replace foundational knowledge with problem-based curriculum, as happened in many medical schools, or the way in which generic transferable skills were foregrounded over disciplinary knowledge. Muller asks, what knowledge is of most worth for the millennial citizen? And for him, the answer was unequivocally mode one. From the point of view of the developing world, he argued, we cannot afford to replace mode one with mode two. Now, more than a decade has passed since these heated debates in South Africa, and some institutions in response to the mode two call attempted hugely ambitious reform to transform curriculum to be more responsive, relevant, problem-oriented. The implementation of this policy in my own institution was so disastrous that it has been impossible to this day to even speak of the word curriculum reform of any kind, however badly it might be needed. What I propose is that it would be productive for us to revisit the mode one, mode two as a manifestation of contestation in the field of knowledge production. If mode two knowledge is not simply applied science, but is its own kind of knowledge, as Gibbons and colleagues are proposing, then the question I'm interested in is what are the implications for curricula which enable epistemic access? Now to attempt an answer to these questions, I offer a framework which enables us to conceptualize this curriculum contestation. This framework attempts to move us beyond either ors to a way of thinking which asks what are the underlying principles which constitute this contestation. It looks to the field of power in which mode one and mode two are different kinds of capital vying for resources. And even deeper, it looks to the underlying principles which posit, which position these forms of capital. And I will show how legitimation code theory draws together both the field theory of Bourdieu and the code theory of Bernstein to get us underneath these polarizing discourses. In the same way that Gibbons and colleagues argue that a new language of research has been invented, what I would aspire, and not myself, but uh, colleagues and I who are working in this area would aspire to offer here, is a new language or a new way of thinking about curriculum from a knowledge point of view. The conceptual framework has a number of key requirements. I need to say something about the ontological status of knowledge the nature of the field or the fields which constitute the knowledge practices and the underlying principles which constitute the basis of legitimation. And then against this conceptual map or framework, I will discuss some of the key trends in curriculum change. And then finally, come back to the issue of epistemic access. The conceptual framework. Any conceptualization of epistemic access necessitates a brief detour to establish some ontological assumptions. To view knowledge as a social field exposes both its structured and structuring properties. And this comes from Matin, who borrows from Bourdieu. Various educational traditions have tended to emphasize one property over the other. Sociologists of education rooted in a critical or social realist paradigm have reasserted the ontological reality of knowledge, or to put it more simply, that knowledge matters. As Matin captures it, knowledge claims are always about something and by someone. The first assertion is that knowledge is real. A knowledge claim is always about something other than itself and cannot simply be reduced to, to, to who is making the claim. This is the epistemic relation. 
The second assertion is that we can ever only know through our socially constituted ways of knowing. This is the social relation. Social realism thus asserts both the objectivity and the sociality of knowledge. Now, all this is, has important implications for how we understand disciplines. What Trowler and colleagues talk about in their latest book, um, at what they define as reservoirs of knowledge resources, which disciplinary practitioners draw on for their localized repertoires. This understanding of disciplines is consistent with the social realist take on knowledge. Curricula provide epistemic entry into disciplinary communities which legitimate certain methods of inquiry, which hold entrants and members of the community accountable to certain sets of epistemic values. These values set the boundaries of what constitutes the community in the first place, or the rules of the game, if you like, but at the same time, set out the stakes, the struggle, the contestation. Now, having established both the objectivity and sociality of knowledge, I turn to elaborate the field or the fields which structure these knowledge practices. And for this, I turn to Bernstein's pedagogic device. The pedagogic device models the relationship between the field of production, where knowledge is produced, the field of recontextualization, where knowledge is translated into curriculum, and the field of reproduction, where knowledge is transmitted through pedagogy. Each of these fields have different rules which constitute what's acceptable. Thus, one can hear strong resonances of Bourdieu in Bernstein's notion of field. In Bourdieu's terms, it is always a field of power. It is the relationship between the field and its forms of capital, and in this case, knowledge, and the positioning of agents, which explains the, knowledge, the logic of the social practices. Bernstein's interest is in the relay or the transformation of knowledge as it circulates across the different fields, for example, from research into curriculum, into pedagogy. For Bernstein, the fields are hierarchically related with the rules of each field derived from the one above it. In this model, curricula inherit their basis of legitimation from the field of knowledge production. However, Bernstein notes that in the process of delocating from one field to another, a gap is created. As a discourse moves, quoting Bernstein, as a discourse moves from its original site to its new positioning, a transformation takes place. And every time a, trans a, a transformation takes place, because every time a discourse moves from one place to another, there's a space in which ideology can play. Thus, while these knowledges are related, they are not the same. Their basis of legitimacy, what makes them special, is not the same. The research produced in a scientific lab is not the same as the educational knowledge in a science textbook. There have been all manner of selections and translations which occur. This gap becomes a key focus of interest in conceptualizing epistemic access. What is the nature of the gap between the field where knowledge is being produced in increasingly rapid, demand-driven, problem-oriented, competitive, market-driven ways on one hand, and the field of higher education where the knowledge producers are being produced. What transformations are taking place? Bernstein's pedagogic device was developed largely with the schooling sector in mind. Does the hierarchical relationship hold for higher education? And if so, if so this would suggest that higher education curricula inherit their basis of legitimation or their epistemic code from the field of knowledge production. Is this the case? 
Or are there other competing forces of recontextualization which may be profoundly disrupting the relationship between knowledge in the field of production and the field of recontextualization? Having established the fields and problematized the relationship between them, the conceptual task is to expose the underlying principles which constitute the basis of legitimation in this field, what Bourdieu would refer to as the forms of capital, what Bernstein refers to as the underlying principles or the codes which constitute different orders of meaning. Even if we as educationists were to agree that epistemic access is crucial, there, are, there would be fundamental disagreements amongst us about what kind of knowledge is needed. What kind of knowledge do our students need access to? As the social realists put it, there are more or less powerful forms of knowledge. These are contestations about legitimacy, and one hears resonance of these in the discourses of polarity cited above. I propose that in order to avoid a slide into these either-or ways of thinking, it's necessary to map out the broader field of contestation and to attempt to expose some of the underlying principles which are at stake. This then yields a picture of differentiation, different forms of knowledge. It's important to note the long history and tradition of knowledge typologies. Aristotle distinguishes between episteme, techne, and phronesis. Muller, drawing on the work of Ryle and Winch, contrasts knowing that, knowing how, knowing why. Bernstein, drawing on Durkheim's distinctions between the sacred and the profane knowledge, used the spatial metaphors of horizontal and vertical to distinguish between systematic and everyday knowledge. And of course, there's Beecher's classic characterizations of hard applied, hard pure, soft applied, and soft pure. And in my own work, I extend Muller and Gamble's work to distinguish between practical and theoretical knowledge and their principled and proceduralized variants. These typologies come from different traditions and each offer helpful distinctions for characterizing differentiation. But the approach is slightly different here. It follows from legitimation code theory that underlying every typology is a topology of principles. And these principles or codes offer a toolkit for analysis. And I will draw on only one set of tools, the semantic codes. Other tools would expose other distinctions, and thus this analysis in no way claims to be exhaustive of the possibilities of classifying knowledge practices. As with all the codes, the purpose of the semantic codes, semantic gravity and semantic density, is to enable us to say something about the orders of meaning and what is legitimated. These particular codes say something about the internal and external relations of knowledge practices. And I start with the external relations, semantic gravity. And I'm using Mayton's definition. Semantic gravity is defined as the degree to which meaning relates to its context whether that be social or symbolic. And semantic gravity may be relatively stronger or weaker along a continuum of strengths. Now, since all meaning is context-dependent, it's important to specify what I mean by context. For the purposes of this conceptual framework, semantic gravity re refers to the external relations of knowledge practices and the extent to which meaning is strongly or loosely embedded in the context of application or performance. Thus, Knowledge practices with strong semantic gravity would mean those both constituted for and by a site of practice, a situation, or a problem. Ones with weak semantic gravity would mean those knowledge practices which are context independent. 
Semantic density is defined as the degree of condensation of meaning within symbols, terms, concepts, phrases, expressions. Semantic gravity, like, density, like gravity, may be relatively stronger or weaker. For the purposes of this conceptual framework, semantic density refers to the internal relations of the knowledge, its, its internal structuring. I operationalize semantic density to refer to the extent to which the knowledge practice is conceptually dense or conceptually light. Concepts with strong semantic density package up meaning through, for example, abstraction, as one sees in the science, or by compounding or layering meaning, as one sees in design. Concepts with weak semantic density are less abstract, less layered, and have a closer relationship to their empirical phenomena. These continua, as axes, create a topology for mapping both knowledge differentiation in the field of knowledge production and curriculum differentiation in the field of recontextualization. These two underlying principles or basis of legitimation enable us to distinguish knowledge practices by signaling something about the nature of the context and something about the nature of the concept. I can now use these codes to analyze the differentiated forms of knowledge in the field of knowledge production. In the bottom left quadrant, in the bottom left quadrant, we have strong semantic gravity and weak semantic density, what Bernstein refers to as horizontal discourses or everyday knowledge. This is, quote, oral, local, context-dependent, and specific, or what Friedson calls practical knowledge. Its organizing logic is the function, the purpose, the problem at hand. Its basis of legitimation is experience. In the top right-hand quadrant, we have weak semantic gravity and strong semantic density, what Bernstein refers to as vertical discourse or systematic knowledge. The basis of legitimation is thus not experience, but the capacity to integrate experiences, to create very general propositions and theories which integrate knowledge at the lower levels. Friedson calls this formal knowledge, abstract, general in character, and cannot be applied directly to the problems of work. Vertical discourse is the stock of what we know as disciplines, what Bernstein refers to as singulars. Now, in his work on knowledge structures, Bernstein only offers horizontal and vertical discourses because of his particular interest. But the topology set up by the semantic codes enables us to go further. In the bottom right-hand quadrant, we have knowledge discourses which are both strong in semantic gravity and strong in semantic density. Through Bernstein's knowledge, though Bernstein's knowledge discourses do not account for this quadrant, he coins the term regions to describe the recontextualization of singulars. Regions, for example, medicine, engineering, architecture, operate at the interface of the field of knowledge production and any field of practice. Regions recruit vertical discourse for the solving of problems. They have a dual accountability. They face both ways, inwards towards the discipline as well as outwards towards fields of practice. I call this professional or regionalized knowledge. In his discussion of singulars and regions, Bernstein adds an additional performance mode, which he calls generic, which he notes is a more recent construction historically. He argues that generic modes are produced by, quote, a functional analysis of what is, what is taken to be the underlying features necessary to perform the performance of a skill, a task, a practice, or even an area of work. This is the top left quadrant. 
The logic of generic is that it can transcend specific context. It can be transferable. Thus, it is weak in semantic gravity. It also tends to repudiate content or concepts in favor of processes or outcomes. It is thus weak in semantic density. Thus, by mapping Bernstein's knowledge, different knowledge discourses onto the semantic field, we expose different epistemic codes. We can therefore understand the mode one, mode two debate as a contestation over whether knowledge is principally legitimated by its function, its usefulness, or whether it's legitimated by its adherence to the logic of the discipline. This we could call an epistemic code battle. Now, what happens with I'm moving now to my fourth section. What happens when these different kinds of knowledge in the field of production are recontextualized into curriculum? Before turning to this question, I want to quickly recap my argument so far. Firstly, the conceptual framework exposes different forms of knowledge in the field of knowledge production. All have their place in the field, but some are considered more powerful knowledge than others. Unthinkable knowledge, as Bernstein calls it, or what we might call innovation. Secondly, these different forms of knowledge are selected or not and transformed into curricula. So there's a relationship between disciplinary professional knowledge and curriculum knowledge, but they are not the same. There is a gap where, as Bernstein reminds us, ideology can play. There are, in fact, many recontextualizing forces at play on curriculum, and a historical view of any curriculum will review different forces of change over time. Shepard and colleagues trace the development of an engineering curriculum from the mid-1800s, the efforts to professionalize, to raise its status by introducing more and more basic sciences at the cost of the practical subjects. We note with alarm, much of what we've heard in this conference, about the forces of recontextualizing forces of the market on curriculum, the drive for curricula which are means to some economic end, which constructs students as consumers, academics as service providers, where relevance to the workplace trumps all. And we are increasingly aware of the way in which technology is shaping educational practice. But what is it doing to educational knowledge? My colleague, Laura Chernovich, proposes that we are seeing in some uses of educational technology, for example, in MOOCs, the disaggregation of content from pedagogy, from assessment. We need to be asking critical questions about the implications of this for epistemic access. In each of these delocations and relocations of knowledge, Bernstein would argue that there is a change in the classification of knowledge. There is a shift in the epistemic code. And the third point of my argument has been that mode two knowledge processes pose crucial challenges for curricula. I want to now turn in this final section to look at this a little bit more closely. What happens when the boundaries of disciplines are weakened in the interest of some external purpose. In other words, the strengthening of semantic gravity, or in other words, when curricula face outwards. In the late 1900s, there was an attempt in South Africa by the state to shift higher education curricula towards greater responsiveness to mode two. If we scan internationally, we see high-profile institutions continuing to seriously grapple with what this means, that is, the outward face of curricula. The central question of Stanford University's recent review of their undergraduate curriculum is, quote, how do we best prepare Stanford students for local, national, and global citizenship? And of course, there's the famous Melbourne model, a radical curriculum shift towards interdisciplinarity. These processes all reveal that reform 
is, a much more, is much more complex than it would appear, and it is crucial to pay attention to what is happening to knowledge. Now, Bernstein gives us the beginnings of a model for thinking about this recontextualization in different, of different kinds of knowledge into different kinds of curriculum. He distinguishes between collection code and integrated code curricula. A collection code curricula is one where the contents stand in closed relation to each other. They are bounded, they are strongly classified. We can think of a bachelor's of social science degree where students might major in psychology, sociology, and politics. The boundaries of the discipline are by and large maintained. The logic of the curriculum is the conceptual spine of its respective disciplines. The integrated curriculum code is where the contents stand in open relation to each other. The boundaries of the discipline are weakened as we might see in inter- and multidisciplinarity. This is a different logic. The disciplines become subordinate to an external problem in the real world of practice. For example, climate change, HIV AIDS, poverty, development. Now interestingly, Bernstein does not suggest that the knowledge base of the integrated code is weakened. He simply notes that any recontextualizing process, the classification of knowledge will change. There will be a shift in the epistemic coding. The crucial question, he argues, is in whose interest is the apartness of things? And in whose interest is the new togetherness, the new integration? Now, drawing on the conceptual model which I developed, I would like to now propose that there are three possibilities for curriculum when there is a contextual shift. And each of these shifts represent changes in the classification of knowledge or in changes of the epistemic code. The first possibility is a shift towards genericism. This contextual shift, when this contextual shift happens, it is at the cost of semantic gravity and semantic density. In other words, in an attempt to make a contextual shift, both the contextual and the conceptual logic are weakened. These would be curricula where specialist knowledge is backgrounded. And what is foregrounded is high-level context content and context-independent dispositions, qualities, or attributes. These would be curricula where the primary driving logic is, for example, graduate attributes. For example, global citizenship, critical thinking. This is a curriculum which privileges what Mayton refers to as the knower code over the knowledge code, where who you are becomes more important than what or how you know. And this, of course, has been one of the critiques of learning outcomes-based education in South Africa, and we have seen this worldwide. The second possibility is a shift towards what I call practical curricula. Here, semantic gravity is strengthened at the cost of semantic density. What becomes privileged is context-specific skills which can be wielded in practice. In 2009-2010, I was a part of a research team tasked to conceptualize curriculum differentiation in a comprehensive university in South Africa. Now, comprehensives are a new category of university which are the result of a merger between a traditional university and a university of technology. We noted in our analysis that some of the formative bachelor's degrees of the collection type had experienced a contextual shift, a pull to become more relevant, to produce graduates who are work-ready. For example, in some of these degrees, courses which would have been considered foundational knowledge were replaced with a growing suite of practical subjects. 
Thus, in these cases, the contextual shift resulted in more theoretical knowledge being replaced by more procedural knowledge. Sociologists of education have been critical of this contextual shift. Michael Young and Johann Muller, in their future scenarios for curriculum, critique the so-called end-of-boundary scenario, arguing that the need for specialist disciplinary knowledge will not go away. It will simply become available, only available to those privileged enough to access elite and private sector institutions. Stoffru, in her study of the regionalization of social scientific knowledge in French universities, is critical about how knowledge is decontextualized and recontextualized in this process. Her critique is that as a result of this contextual shift, sociology students are immediately confronted with solving a, solving a social problem before they've been given the theoretical and methodological tools to transform it into a sociological problem. This resonates with critiques of problem-based learning. Larson's work in progress study ex examines a contextual shift in higher education curricula in Denmark in response to Bologna. He shows in his analysis how the disciplinary boundaries are blurred. When the disciplinary boundaries are blurred, this then gives rise to pedagogical interventions such as problem-based learning. He argues PBL is brought in to redeem the lost disciplines. He argues that in this process, the knower attributes and dispositions are foregrounded and knowledge is backgrounded, fragmented, and weakened. Does the weakening of disciplinary boundaries, however, inevitably lead to the fragmentation of knowledge, a slide toward genericism, a slide toward skills, or what Norman Grubb refers to as the vocalization, vocationalization? Can we produce curricula which are the transformation of regionalized knowledge, and what would these look like? These questions lie at the heart of a growing body of scholarship in South Africa noted earlier, much of it motivated by a desire to understand the epistemic barriers which talented but underprepared students face as they enter into higher education. These studies point to a third possibility. The third possibility is that as semantic gravity strengthens, so does the semantic density. Time will allow only a brief illustration from a design foundation course at our local University of Technology. This design foundation course has as its purpose to give students who've been identified as talented in art but have had no prior training. The course is designed to give ep epistemic access to the general field of design as well as to a range of specific design disciplines. And this slide should have a reference to Dion Stein, who, whose work this is. What the analysis of the curriculum briefs reveals is that as designer ways of knowing develop through the, is that designer ways of knowing develop through the engagement with increasingly more context-dependent design problems, which require increasingly abstract design concepts. In this epistemic code, the engagement with the particularity of the problem enables, indeed, advances the capacity for abstraction. This is not simply the application of theory to practice. This is its own, this is a specific form of knowledge with its own epistemic code. The analysis also reveals how different design problems will require and develop different kinds of designer identities. The relationship between these epistemic codes and the identities which they constitute is a fascinating area of research which, which Stein's work gives us a glimpse of, but more work is needed to understand how different, the different identities within the different epistemic codes. 
The, Stan the Stanford University Review gives us a glimpse of what this might mean when they, when they argue that students begin to understand the stakes, not merely of studying physics or philosophy, but of understanding and engaging the world as physicists or philosophers do. They become fully vested in the knowledge they have gathered, which ceases to be something external and becomes a part of who they are. In conclusion, in closing, let me be clear about what I am, what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Amid all the profound changes being experienced in higher education, which lead us to reflect at this conference on the purposes of higher education, we're witnessing a contextual shift in curriculum, a weakening of boundaries around the disciplines, a breaking down of their isolation, a strengthening of the interface between disciplinary knowledge and the great challenges of our time. Harvard Provost Hyman commenting on the tension between the autonomy of disciplines and the needs of the rapidly changing world remarks, there's no reason why the problems of the 21st century should happily conform to the academic divisions concretized by the end of the, 13th, of the, end of the 19th century. The conceptual framework which I have offered shows how this contextual shift is a battle over the epistemic code, what kinds of knowledge will be legitimated, and it posits that there are a number of possible outcomes of this contextual shift. Let me be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that generic qualities and dispositions have no place in the curriculum of the 21st century. Ron Barnett and Kelly Coates' conceptualization of curriculum, a foregrounding of being in their conceptualization of curriculum, is a crucial corrective. Neither am I saying that there's no place for deep, context-embedded, practical skills. What I am saying is that these ways of being and ways of acting must have an epistemic anchoring in the disciplinary <clears throat> and interdisciplinary forms of knowledge. This is what makes higher education higher education. If higher education's primary purpose is to produce the next generation of knowledge producers, I challenge us to recommit ourselves as policymakers, as educators, researchers, to ensure curricula for epistemic access. Not only is this a matter of social justice for those who have been traditionally marginalized from their role as knowledge producers, but where these marginalized youth constitute the majority of the population, it is a matter of the future economic sustainability of our countries. It's possible in a talk like this to be so focused on structures that, that one can lose sight of agency. The ones who through acts of courage and resilience take ownership of the knowledge. In UCT's most recent alumni magazine, there was a story that caught my eye about Tabisa Kalisa. Tabisa's story up to the point is familiar to us. She says, I did well in school, but I had no hope of studying further. I grew up in poverty and I thought I was meant to live in poverty. She raises her two children, plus her niece and her cousin after the death of her mother, and she was destined to join the thousands of young people in the townships trapped by poverty and circumstance. But the narrative takes an unexpected turn. In 2002, with only 50 rand in her pocket, that's about three pounds, she leaves her rural town and heads for Cape Town to study. Her application to study medicine at UCT is turned down because her grades are not good enough. 
She's turned down at another local university because she cannot afford the registration fees. She returns to UCT where she's advised to study humanities and someone assists her to get a loan. In 2005, she completed a BA in media studies. In 2007, a postgraduate honors degree. And in 2011, a master's degree. And she's now registered for her doctorate and is planning to make as the focus of her PhD a documentary about her mother. Tabisa has become a knowledge producer. And surely there is nothing more important for us in this audience to be doing than ensuring that the Tabisas of our world gain access to higher education which sees its primary purpose to give students epistemic access, thereby enabling them to become the next generation of knowledge producers. Thank you. Sue Allen for um, giving us that's very neat and powerful model for looking at curricula um, and is indeed a, an international issue that speaks to us all. We have about 10 minutes I think for questions. If we could follow the same rules as before that you identify yourself and where you're from um, and we may well take more than one question at a time and I believe there are roving mics around so please the floor's open now for questions. If you've got a hand up and I can't see it, please, please put it up even higher. Paul, do you want to take the opportunity of Chair's prerogative? Oh, David has a question. Am I switched on? Thank you for that very powerful um, and effective description of what you're trying to do as well as the theoretical description. I wonder, Sue Ellen, what you think of the attempt by Richard Sennett and others to revive the notion of craft in a higher education context and this mixing of the, of the head and, and the hand and tapping into some of that um, disguised tradition in higher education that certainly was very important in, in the UK and then somewhat suppressed as the mechanics institutes got swept into, into public examinations and so on. Is that a part of the discourse as well in terms of the institutions that you're trying to, to um, revive and to um, reformulate? Did you refer to a, sorry, do you refer to a specific reference of the use of craft? Richard Sennett has, has recently written a trilogy of works about craft in higher education where he goes back to some of these earlier traditions mm. of craft in post-compulsory education as not necessarily privileging theoretical knowledge immediately, but as it were discovering theoretical knowledge during the course of exactly the kind of exercises that you mm. were describing um, with your art trajectory. Shall I respond to that? Yes, please do, please do. I'm not familiar with that particular reference, but work on craft that's been done by um, a 
colleague at the University of Cape Town, John Gamble, has been very influential in my own thinking. Um, she, uses, she uses Bernstein's work, she starts with Bernstein's work, to try and explain. Her, her own research was looking at cabinet makers and trying to understand the kinds of knowledge that were being brought to bear. And she did a bit of an ethnographic study and followed these uh, cabinet makers and then develops a kind of a, an extension, really, of Bernstein's work. And what's, what's interesting is, and, and what in a sense then I took to try and make sense of this project where I was involved in, what, what, we, what, what she reveals is the principled nature of the tacitness of the knowledge. So it's tacit, but there's a principled basis to it. Um, and so, you know, does it leap over the boundary, the sort of, you know, the boundary is what preoccupies Bernsteinians, um, and she would argue that it doesn't, but it, that it has a strongly principled basis to it. So when I was listening to colleagues at the institution where we were working who were trying to describe what was so important for them in the context of what we call in South Africa diploma, which is higher education, but it tends to be a vocationally oriented qualification. What I was hearing them talk about is the principled basis of that um, practical knowledge. Um, and so what we did is we designed a, so to try and get away from the theoretical versus the practical, which immediately polarized the d discussion, we tried to come up with nuances within that um, that enabled um, us to see the principles that were in underlying that tacit embodied forms of, of knowledge. Um, so I think there's really important work for us to be drawn. It's, it, we begin to kind of appreciate the complexity of that embodied knowledge, which is so central, particularly, I think, to vocational curriculum, but not only. Now, thank you for that question. Thank you. Are there other questions? Yes. Want to I'm sorry, my hearing's not very good, so please. <laughs> my, my name's Jeff Hinchliffe, University of East Anglia. Um, I'd just like to say I thoroughly indulge your conclusion. Hip, hip, hooray. Um, I've been reading uh, um, Gramsci recently and telling anyone who would care to listen um, how uh, important um, he saw the idea of formation of the intellectual. And although he didn't use the word epistemic access, that was what he was talking about in terms of uh, enabling um, working class people have a rich curriculum in order, to, in order that they can challenge the hegemony, hegemony mm. of the capitalists and fascists. Mm. And he also attacked um, in the 1920s and criticised um, innovations to the reform made by the fascist government under Mussolini, Mussolini which was reducing epistemic access in favour of uh, generic um, skills on the one hand and context um, you know, the, the, two, the two quadrants on the left-hand side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I do think it's important, however, is to decouple um, the idea of epistemic access from traditional pedagogy, because you can have high epistemic access, but combine that with innovatory pedagogy. Mm. I mean, what, what my model doesn't even begin to touch on is the forms of pedagogy that enable the, the epistemic access, um, but there's a very, um, yeah, in, in Bernstein's terms, that's another field. <laughs> that's another kind of recontextualizing process. Thank you. We have time for one yep. more, I think. 
Can I just say one of the, um, I think it's at Ian, I forget the surname, one of the papers that I sat in, the colleague who worked in the dental, Ian talking Kenshin. about the, yes, Ian Kenshin, thank you, um, raised, I mean, what we're, what, one of the things that we're looking at in our own curriculum, our own professional context, is this, I mean, the traditional way in which students are trained in, in professional curricula is an introduction to the basic sciences, and then they move into the clinical sciences. And what colleagues of ours who are working in this area are starting to do is to say, how, how do we ensure that that quadrant, that bottom right-hand quadrant happens all along the way? Um, because what it's supposed to happen in the clinical, but that requires students not only to bring that knowledge, but to be able to integrate it in complex ways. So the pedagogical issues around this, I think, are quite phenomenal. And many people here who are working in that area would be able to address that without using this framework. I don't, is this working? Yes. Uh, Virginia King from Coventry University. Sue Ellen, I really enjoyed your talk because it allowed me to see a link with Howard Hodgson's talk yesterday, where he was talking about who was setting the agenda, who was driving higher education and its outcomes. And um, the push towards employability, which so many of us have to kind of accommodate, what you've given in your model, from, from my point of view, is, is a way of challenging that and saying, we have to go deeper. We have to not be so uh, instrumental. We have to maintain the intellectual rigor of our courses. And I really thank you for that. See, in the, in the South African context, we can't afford to not look at the relationship between higher education and the economy. I mean, in a sense, the, the imperative of curriculum to meet the needs of the economy is something that we have to address. So, so while we would want to be, we would want to be also very careful in our context of the employability agenda, what this would suggest is there's a way to come at that, but through a deeper engagement with the knowledge base. Yeah. We have time for one more question, but we must be late finishing or Helen will be quite justifiably cross. <laughs> uh, I, I think we, we all really appreciate the idea that higher education is education uh, about disciplines, about deep knowledge. I think perhaps something that you might be underestimating uh, is the way in which uh, the discipline boundaries are, are collapsing because of the trajectory of scientific and engineering research uh, and, and uh, it's increasingly difficult uh, to teach students in, in science and engineering and rely on chemistry and biology and physics and uh, uh, those of us who are trying to create undergraduate curriculum in, in, in those areas uh, are, are facing problems that are not related to the uh, pressures for employability, or, but just, just dealing with the way in which uh, it's possible to teach those, uh, those subjects uh, uh, and, and, and fully take into account uh, what's happening at the research frontier where the disciplines really are breaking down. Yeah. Well, thank you for that comment. I, in, in fact, I was very challenged by Jörg's um, keynote this morning because I think that, um, in a sense, what what I'm trying to argue is that we, in, in order to understand what's happening in, the, in, in higher education within the curriculum, we really do need to be engaging with what's happening in the field of knowledge production. And, and, 
And that comes right down to how do we teach chemistry. <laughs> um, so I have, a, I have a colleague. Just move to that mic. I have a, I have a colleague who's looking, for example, at how the teaching of thermodynamics in one context of one discipline changes in, the, in a context of a different engineering discipline. And so the very nature of that semantic, the high semantic gravity, the purpose of the theory changes the, the way the curriculum is delivered. And so those are some of the issues we're grappling with. As in, um, doesn't mean that the chemistry isn't important and that those basic sciences are important, but how that then comes together. Um, and what we know f with, for our students is that for many students, not, not just underprepared students, that those become epistemic barriers. Um, so the work that we've been doing in, in, in the engineering context would say, across a four, in our context, a four-year curriculum, what are the key places in which students experience an epistemic code shift. Now we know, and our, you know, our Center for Education has traditionally worked at the, the gap between university, school and university, but we know that there are significant epistemic code shifts when the students move from the basic sciences to the engineering sciences. And then again, when they move from those engineering sciences into design. Um, and we have done all kinds of pedagogical things to deal with those difficulties, but we haven't really looked at it from a knowledge point of view. Um, so that's where this kind of work would be leading. And thank you for that comment. And can I finish by thanking you, Sue Ellen, for a very careful and well thought through and, 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 and presented uh, talk with us this afternoon. It's been really uh, uh, thought-provoking and given us something useful to work with. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sue Ellen, and, and thank you for sharing the session. I was very appreciative of the comment that you made about connections between uh, two such different presentations, and I, I think it's very gratifying to know that because we are very fortunate that all of our speakers who've spoken today and yesterday have been with us throughout the conference because they've chosen to be so very different but to make connections and uh, for that to have come across is, is, is very much appreciated. We're not into eating into anybody's time other than your own and so the, um, you have a rare moment in the conference program now which is a short break to refresh yourselves um, before we meet again at seven o'clock for drinks before dinner. Um, if you're not coming to the formal conference dinner, please do still join us at the drinks reception um, and use that as a networking opportunity. And if anybody wants to come to any of the Meet the Editors sessions, they will start just a little bit earlier. Uh, but you have a tiny bit of, of spare time. It looks as if Francois wants to make some kind of announcement. What would you like me to say or what would you like to say? Uh, can I just explain to everyone regarding dinner tonight, those who have booked dinner inside your badge, stuck between the two labels, will be a dinner ticket. And we'd be grateful if you produced that at the door when you came in tonight so that we know that you have booked. If you haven't got one in there and you think you may have booked, you might have to ask me. Um, I've got limited places. I've only got seven dinner places left tonight. Uh, so to, please do check. The second thing is the bus to the Hilton leaves um, in 10 minutes and returns at quarter to seven for your drink, so you can take your luggage, leave it there, and then come back. 
um, and enjoy the rest of the evening. I should say, please don't panic. You're not all going to the Hilton. Um, there are a, a very small number of people. The hotel is completely full who are actually just staying this night at the Hilton. So if it doesn't apply to you, don't panic. Okay, we look forward to seeing you later.